Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure, Take with, the adventure us. with 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 us. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax channel and we are going to talk music. We're going to talk music from way back when, from 1991. In fact, September 24th, 1991, a very special day in music. And uh, as always, if you'd be so kind as to leave a lovely comment or some really high ratings or whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to this we'd really appreciate it it would make us happy and get the word out so without further ado ladies and gentlemen may i introduce to you first from princeton new jersey mr david coach and david welcome thank you thank you it's a pleasure to be here thank you mr newcomb there you go and Late of New Jersey or late of Orange County, but he is all New Jersey all the time. Mr. Howard Broadbent. Welcome, Howard. Thank you, Sean. All Pleasure right. to be here, David. Always, always a treat to be alongside you to talk music. Awesome. What a look at the collegiality there. It's just a wonderful. This is going to be a great podcast. All right, so we're talking September 24th, 1991. So this is a special day in music because there were three seminal albums released that day. And uh, these are albums that really a lot of people think not only are, were classics, but had a really transformative effect on culture. So what I thought would be good is let's kind of give the setting of what the world was like in 1991, what the musical world was like, and then we'll dive into the three albums, the three albums are just so you know ahead of time it's going to be the low end theory by a tribe called quest it's going to be blood sugar sex magic by red hot chili peppers and Nevermind by nirvana so they were all released on the same day and these are albums that in their own genres and their own music people really love so what was the world like in 1991 well the president was george Herbert Walker Bush, that's Papa Bush, the Super Bowl champion, the reigning champion at that moment, was a team from a wonderful city, city of New York. They were the New York Giants. They were actually the champions for the 1990 season, but they won the Super Bowl in 1991. The top movies during 1991 were Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Home Alone, Silence of the Lambs, and City Slickers. And how many of you have seen those guys? Have you seen those movies, David, Howard? Uh, maybe half of them. Half of them? Oh, yeah. Did you, oh. did you go to see them in 1991? Did you go to the theaters? Did you rush out to see City Slickers? I have no memories of 1991. Specifically, oh, it's so. blocked out. That's Yeah, it's hard. We'll, we'll explore that. It's, uh, okay. that'll, that'll help the kids to understand what things were going on then. All right, so the top U.S. TV shows were 60 Minutes, Roseanne, Murphy Brown, and then a tie at 4th and 5th, Cheers, and Home Improvement. Okay. Now, this was kind of a transitional year because 1991 represents the end of the Gulf War. It represents 
we're about to go into the 92 election, which of course brings us Bill Clinton, a change into the baby boomers from the World War II generation, which was what uh, George W. Bush was, is the last of the World War II generation to be president. We have a change in pop culture. Johnny Carson announced his retirement in 1991. He retired in 1992. For those listening outside the U.S., Johnny Carson was a major uh, U.S. late night talk show host. And at the same time, there was a guy named Arsenio Hall, who's still around. Everyone knows him. I've seen him in Coming to America. He was popularizing a newer, younger type of talk show. So you could see these kinds of the shifts that start occurring in culture. And we see the same kind of shifts in music. Because the 90s, and what we'll get into it, bring about certain sounds. But before we talk about the sounds that are shifting, let's talk about what were like the top songs. So the top five songs, and I know, David and Howard, you can't wait to dive into this, so we're going to talk about these. Here are the top five songs for 1991. Number five, One More Try by Timmy T. I have no idea what this song was. I don't even remember it. And then I watched a video, and he's wearing a short-sleeved turtleneck, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Uh, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Do you guys ever have short-sleeved turtlenecks? I'm bringing it back, actually. Yeah. So he had a short-sleeved turtleneck, which was something. Then, and this is big for Howard, Rush Rush was number four of the year by Paula Abdul. And do you guys know who was in the video for Rush Rush? Rush? Rush, yes, Getty Lee. What did you say? Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, in that video was a young Keanu Reeves. There you go. So, Howard, you have a Paul Abdul anecdote, right? I, I, I do. I do, Sean, um, because uh, there is some significance to, to Ms. Abdul as it specifically relates to the date uh, that, that you have mentioned that we're covering today, because uh, Ms. Abdul's uh, song, the Promise of a New Day was the number one song on the day that these three albums came out. Now, what do you make of that significance in light of these three albums? What is that? Does it tell you anything? Do you even remember that Promise of a New Day? Do you remember that song? Uh, I do not. Um, interestingly, as I, as I scan through the list of the number one songs, obviously, because, you know, things chart every, I think, is that every uh, week that the chart changes? Mm -hmm. um, it's quite an interesting roster of, of music um, that uh, I guess is reflective of the of the time. I, I see Timmy T on there. Um, do you remember that song at all? I have I do no not. memory of that song. I do at not. All. But but interestingly, there because there are some other artists on here. I mean, certainly it fits. You know that Paul Abdul is on here for you know having a number one, a couple number one songs that year. Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Gloria Estefan, Amy Grant. Uh, so there's, there's quite a bit on here, but then there's also, um, Karen White, romantic. Hmm. Um, don't know if I could peg that one. Um, London beat. I've been thinking about you. Um, obviously the Timmy T that, that, that you mentioned. Um, so yeah, it's a quite, quite an interesting, you know, roster of number one songs. High five. I like the way the kissing game. It's well. It's a, definitely a transitional period, and I'm serious. I can't get the guy's short sleeve turtleneck out of my head. I just well, it's bizarre to me. But uh, I, okay, I can just say. I mean, these are all pop classics, and as a matter of fact, I do remember the Paula Abdul song that Howard was referring to, and um, as a matter of fact, Adlai Stevenson was in the video for that one. 
a did young he, Adlai Stevenson? Did he time travel or was it just okay? Yeah. And and if you don't know who Adlai Stevenson is, for you people out there, go look it up. Um, so okay, number three is uh, uh, for the year. So we'll, we'll continue this hour. Is gonna make you sweat. CNC Music Factory. So I remember that. I think we all remember that. That seemed to be playing at every club. And that video featured lots of dancing. So we have a video with a guy I don't remember, a video with Keanu Reeves, and a video with lots of dancing. And then, I know this will bring back a lot of memories for you. Number two was I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. So now I got to ask you guys, I looked at the video and it reminded me what they look like. I, for some reason, always thought they were supposed to be celebrity impersonators. Like yeah. one guy looked like Kenny G and one guy looked like George Michael. Is that, am I the only one who thought that? No, that's true. I, in fact, I think a couple of them kind of looked like George Michael in different phases of his yeah, career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, one guy kind of looked like, like a future hip hop. I don't know. He just, he had a look of, I don't know, anybody. And then there was one Millie Vanilli guy. I it was just really weird anyway. So that was the big number two. Now, do either of you have any idea of the number one song for the whole year? Uh, number one for the whole year, um, or even just the artist? Just the artist. That's the song. I, well, I, I'm because I'm still looking at the number ones throughout the year. So um, that's how it says this is quite quite an interesting list. It, it, it I, I could go with the uh, I could go with the Michael Bolton when a man loves a woman. Um, nope. That was that was pretty late in the year. It's a, it's a I, I don't want to say it's a similar sound because I, I give him a little more credit. Uh, the person who is number one for you know music, but it is kind of that mid America loud. He's known for a lot of ballads. I'll just tell you, it's Brian, Brian Adams. Brian Adams, I got there it. There you go, you got it. <laughs> David, you win a T-shirt. You win a thirty-four Circus Salon T-shirt. Yes, send it over to you. Uh, yeah, it's everything I do. I do it for you, and that that features a '90s arena concert, vintage '90s arenas concert. Uh, but s slight slight correction, uh, not not so much mid America, but mid Canada. Oh. Yeah, well, true. It is good. safe. That's a good like, point. That's okay. a good point. Yes, for those listening, Brian Adams is from Canada. Um, well, now but the interesting, thing, but he's what? He's truly global. I would. Yeah, say. he. Yeah, he's a, he's a citizen of the earth. Well, I mean, the thing is, though, guys, I mean, when I look at this list, those five songs, and I compare them to the three albums we're going to talk about, it's it, there is definitely a divide between the two, right? I mean, I think these five songs represent just kind of corporate music America. And what I think of when I think back to the early 90s, I feel like there was that brief period in time, which was crushed and snuffed out, sadly in the late 90s, but that brief period in time from the late 80s through the early to mid 90s when you had a lot of this variety of music and a variety of unique and individual sounds that were broadly popular. So it wasn't like, you know, a lot of the things that were considered niche became stuff that you could hear people knew about in other places. Whereas these five songs, the top five, seem like the last gasp of the corporate old guard of course it would come back eventually what do you think well i would certainly agree i mean to me a lot of that um that pop stuff was very disposable but who am i to say because it seems to be uh you know right back in vogue right now <laughs> well yeah because 
It's the, the beast, the monsters, the beast of the apocalypse that they've taken over again. I think, you know, what what happens with that, and now let me go into sort of my my intro to 91 and to the three albums we're going to talk about. Um, so on one day back in 1991, three seminal and legendary albums were released, Blood Sugar, Sex, Magic by Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest, and never, by, never mind by Nirvana. And for me, just an FYI, Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger was also supposed to be released on that day, but was held back by one week due to production issues. And just full disclosure, I'm a big Soundgarden fan. Um, these albums represent not only a moment in time, but a moment in time and space. They are as much of their specific locations as of their moment. America was leaving the sugar high of the 80s hypercapitalism and dealing with the come down of recession and lowered expectations. Each of these albums represents a regional response to the times and local cultures. Because of the changes in laws and regulations, this may have been the last time this kind of individualist, unique expression was possible. Consolidation of broadcast networks and corporations has led to a concentration of power that has stifled not only creativity, but the broad expression of unique art. So each of these albums comes from a different part of America, a different region in the country. And I think they represent the best of their region in many ways, particularly at that time. And so the first one I want to talk about is the Lowen theory. Um, born in the Bronx, New York, hip hop music was an astonishing flowering of creativity from what was then a fraught urban landscape. However, it's wrong to characterize that music as simply a response to rough surroundings because that misses the genius of many of the young men who created this music. Hip-hop has always been a response, a response of African-Americans to the sometimes brutal and violent threats to their existence that prejudice, stereotype, and misperception represented. This music was an irrepressible desire to express that brilliance and complexity of their consciousness and of their lives. It is from this environment that the low-end theory was produced. The album is considered seminal in the development of hip-hop genre and is thought of by many as one of the great albums of all time. Is considered one of the great works of the native tongues, alternative or alternative hip hop movements. So there's your intro. Let's talk low end theory. So uh, David Cochin, <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? What do, you, what do you have to say about it? What did you think about it? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, without a doubt, it really was a fantastic album from start to finish. It, very much represented, you know, the time, but at the same time, it's, it's quite timeless. You can, you know, listen to it now and enjoy it and appreciate it now as much as you did then. Um, it really, uh, you know, it had reached the point where hip hop albums were, were now, um, full concepts in themselves. Um, they weren't just collections of singles and, I think this was really one of the the most fully realized, um, you know, full concept hip hop albums, and it definitely was really one of the best in bridging the genres of hip hop and jazz. It had been attempted before and with varying results, but with this one, it was just really, you know, well executed. Um, and I mean, without a doubt, there are some real highlights on the album, but start to finish it's it's very enjoyable so and i you know again i i could listen to it um at, at this time and enjoy it as much as i did when it first came out i think you know we talk about this a lot i mean there the i think the the range of sophistication and creativity is what 
amazed me about what was happening with hip hop at that moment. I mean, we all remember, you know, and, and I, in fact, I remember you and I talking about David, uh, it, that the hip hop's development in the eighties and then where it was going. Like you, you could just see this progression of sophistication and complexity, not just in like the, the raps themselves and the lyrics themselves, but that was important because that, that kind of rap became much more inventive, much more wordplay, much more the, the meter of the sounds, the use of, of rhythm was changing, but also just, I remember the production started changing. It was stuff like this that really made it stand out. Like you were hearing jazz sounds, you were hearing yeah. blending. Um, it, it was, it was pretty extraordinary. I mean, do you, what do you think just can you you know maybe just give some thoughts on just what you thought about where hip hop was generally at that point early 90s late 80s early 90s you know i i think um it had reached the point where the you know so the first the first phase of hip hop was kind of getting a little bit tired out the the spare beats and um it really out of necessity it, it just really needed to go in new directions and you know the ideas that these guys came uh, came up with. Um, you know the the group themselves, as well as the whoever produced it. I'm not even sure who it was, but I think I think actually Q-Tip produced it. Oh, okay. And yeah. and uh, and also, I mean, speaking of Q-Tip, I mean, to me, uh, in my humble opinion, he is probably one of the top ten, um, you know, MCs um, in hip hop history. He had such a flow and there was sort of a mellowness to his, his voice and the cadences. Um, and then also Fife Dog to a certain extent, but really Q-Tip. I mean, uh, there, there's just a, a certain quality to his voice. It was like, he was, he was kind of, uh, made for the, for that kind of, um, that kind of flow. Yeah. A kind of very jazzy feel. Yeah, Five yeah. Dog passed away a few years yes. ago, right? Yeah, yeah that's correct. Let's let's say the let's talk about who's on the album. By the way, we haven't said that. So the DJ is Ali Shahid Muhammad, and the vocals are primarily Five Dog and Q Tip. But we do get an introduction to a young rapper by the name of Buster Rhymes. Yes, on this album. So Buster Rhymes is on it, and then there's some other names in the album. I'm going to say the names. I'm not familiar as familiar with the the other names, but there's Charlie Brown, Diamond D. Uh, Dinko D, Lord Jamar, and Sadat X. So that's the that's the lineup. And then there is on bass. There's a cameo by Ron Carter, who I know yes. you could talk about. But but anyway, so that's it's uh it's a just the fact that they're they're diving into this. I mean, I'm just you know to you know for the listener, I'm just trying to remember at the time and just thinking they're really playing with these different soundscapes and like you say. Q-Tip's rhymes really fit the style of this music. Um, I mean, his sound, his 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 way. Um, it, it was just, uh, I just have fond memory of thinking, wow, this is a real flowering of poetry and creativity. It's like, you know, we talk about, we get annoyed in certain rom-coms where they talk about, how, you know, hip hop and how you can only rhyme it with certain words. Um, yeah, okay, just go take that somewhere because you really don't understand what this music was about. But uh, let's bring in Mr. Howard Brauvin. Howard, your thoughts? What Dave said, yeah. Okay, okay moving on. Uh, 
yeah, hard to go, uh, you know, go go past what uh, what what David so eloquently uh, shared. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I I think it really it, it, interestingly I think from a, a musical standpoint too in that interplay is that's also the early era of the acid jazz movement and community. So I think I think one influenced the other. I think there was definitely that mixing and that production work of of layering in jazz and hip hop was had some elements of that, but then the entire acid jazz movement, I think, picked up on a lot of that and took it and and, and ran with it uh, to what you know what's now been explored in, in a lot of a lot of funk and soul and you know and R and B. But that 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 era of the early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, and where acid jazz was starting to come about, I think that that this album was a big part of that. What do you think about where hip hop is now? Is there anything? Do you? You know, what I always remember is there was a progression, like, you know, David, you were talking about this progression of music, of sounds, and this became more sophisticated in oral landscapes, the, the music in the background is sophisticated in terms of the lyrics. But, uh, I mean, Howard, where do you, well, looking I, back 30 years now. I, but I, I'll, I'll share this, because I think, I think it applies to your question about hip-hop then and now, but it, it applies to your point earlier about the, the number one songs throughout the year. Um, is I, I, I think if you look at these are three albums, right? They are, they are a, a collection of songs that go together, that fit together, that tell a story like that, that. That's what albums were, right? For much of our generation, much of what we saw, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, that's how music was released in album format. And you were looking for singles, right? Stuff that was going to get radio play that would be popular. Whereas you rattled off that list of all those number one songs, um, those were those were singles, right? Those those were not album tracks, even though they probably were on an album. Um, those were designed to be singles, and we're in a different era now. Whether it comes to hip hop or anything else, that very rarely are people putting together a collection of music in an album format. Um, they're looking for a hit. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, that's, that's what the consumption has been trained <laughs> to, you know, to, to look for. Uh, and so that's what continues to get fed out there. So I wonder if, you know, that, that is really, to me, the bigger question is, is, is anybody going to start to really reinvigorate the idea, whether it's within the hip hop genre or any other of, of a complete album, uh, that, that, you know, that is, that has a story and that has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and and identifiable um, versus you know whether it's a single or two singles or you know what it's interesting what people call an EP today. Um, I think is even still slightly different from what it was in our our era as well. What's the difference between the the, the EP today and the EP in our era? I I, I think again you know an, an an EP was like a a short form album right fought three five songs roughly. Mm-hmm. Could mm-hmm. could be could be four, could be six, sure. whatever. But it's usually around, around five on average. Um, but an EP still had a thematic kind of story to it. Those those were five songs that yeah. kind of fit together. They were from a time period. Uh, they you know they they were speaking to something rather than just these are just five songs that we wanted to put out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think today again it's just here are five five potential hits. Uh, let's put them all out. 
and see and see which one of them takes. So, uh, and that's again, that's that's just an interpretation of where things are in, in how music. I think again, that's how music is consumed. Uh, it's consumed through right through through playlists and recommendations, which are are awesome. Um, but rarely are are we looking at collections of music from an artist uh, about you know a period of time. And and also to pick up on that and actually take it to the next level. Um, you kind of look at nowadays what constitutes a hit and it's um, I don't know. I mean, to me, I find it somewhat depressing because it's just become so oversimplified by now. Um, when you look at things like the chord changes, the instrumentation, the even just, you know, singing or rapping style. Um, I mean, even that compared to 30 years ago has, <laughs> It just doesn't seem like there's as much needed to put into it as as there was even back then. I think it's important to say, too, because something that happens a lot when you start talking about now versus then is that people, to me, it's a lazy out where they go, oh, that's just because you are looking at, you know, you don't know what the young, quote unquote, the young people are listening <laughs> to or you're, you're, you know, you're out of touch. It's like, no, it's like for people who are musicians, all three of us are musicians. It's you're you're we're judging stuff by certain standards. And we judged it. I mean, I remember, I mean, Howard, you and I talked about it in the early 90s. David, you and I met in the mid 80s. And so we critiqued the music of our youth. So it's not like we weren't critiquing stuff then and just imbibed everything. And though it was great, we thought that this flowering that happened in the 90s was finally this great, you know, moment because what we were hearing and what we were seeing what we were being fed at that time prior to this flowering of the, the the 80s there was lots of great 80s music but there was also a lot of stuff being forced down upon you and i think one of the ways um i had described it was um, i'll talk about it when we get to nirvana what what it sounded like because in particularly in rock and roll is where it was really apparent but so when we're talking about what we're hearing today, it's not just, oh, we don't like it because it's not, you know, it's it's new, but rather music is being consumed a different way. Sorry, it's being consumed through TikTok and through whatever your jingles, you know, the, the ringtones and stuff like that. So the incentive to write a full song isn't even always there. Right. So so if your appreciation is in a standard full song structure, then no, you're not going to be comfortable or like what you're hearing now. If you maybe if you're growing up in this music and all you want to hear is a verse, maybe this works for you. So I don't want to, you know, again, I won't discount someone who says I just want to hear a verse, but I think you'd be hard pressed to, to make the argument that just hearing that verse is more complex or sophisticated than having a full song and a full album. So just to get that out of the way. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's different, and then particularly with hip hop, I find it the most depressing because hip hop represented that kind of rebellion and it's just been co-opted in so many different ways. Um, at least that's what it sounds like to me. Are there any standout songs for you guys that you, that, that you want to point out or shout out on that album? I would say check the rhyme is a great one. That's uh, I think that was the lead off single. That's uh, uh, without a doubt um, such a perfect blending of, hip hop and jazz. And, you know, like Howard was talking about the, uh, how acid jazz was becoming, uh, very much, uh, you know, a, a reality at that time. Um, it just, it, you could listen to the backing track for 
a good 10 minutes <laughs> and it's very repetitive, but it's, it's still so, you know, it's just got such a great groove to it, which is what, what's awesome about acid jazz that, um, I mean, I think that speaks volumes that without even listening to the, the vocal part on top, um, you've got a great song, you've got, you know, just a great track going on. And then, uh, I guess another one I would think of is uh, "Scenario," which is I think the last song on the album, and uh, that's just that's just a, a lot of fun. I think that's the one that uh, Buster Rhymes guests on, as well as a bunch of others, and you could just tell they're having such a blast in the studio making it. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean there are others on there that are great. Yeah, check the rhyme. Mm. Jazz and scenario I, always jumps out at me. Yeah. It's a, and it's interesting again from an album structure that that's the closing closing track, right? And to kind of to Dave's point, it's like it's a you know it's it's a fun way to finish finish the album, yeah. right? You know, and whether you know whether we used to listen to it back in the day on on cassette or on vinyl, mm-hmm. like that was that was why album structure was so important. There was there was closure, there was finality to how you were listening to this piece of music. I mean, if it was on cassette, it might've flipped over and started yeah. again. Cause we all had that, you know, hopefully on our, on our cassette decks, but yeah, that's what, you know, that, that was the, that was the interesting thing about how you structure same thing with how it opens with excursions. Right. You yeah. Know, it's like, you know, it, it, it has an opening, right. It, at that, and that's like, again, a good album is, has an opening and it invites you in and then it, it closes and it and it thanks you for coming along for the ride. You know, that's that's, that's how you build it. an album. And that's that's what this one does. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, because we, uh, I remember at that time, it seemed like it was all cassettes. CDs had overtaken vinyl and then cassettes were coming in or maybe it was the other way around. But cassettes were coming in and then CDs were coming in. But they were both there. So I remember having to because in fact, I remember talking about Bad Motor Finger. I remember buying it. And playing it back to back, side to side on the cassette, over and over and over again. Um, so yeah, just the structure of the way you consume the music created a, a way to tell these stories. Which yeah, you, that's another really good reason why we've lost a lot of that. Uh, the songs that stand out for me, just in terms of like if you're a listener and you're interested in what makes these albums gives them their their sensibilities. Jazz we've got is to me the really exemplary of the, the style, that, that kind of jazz, hip-hop jazz blend. And then Watt is just incredible lyricism. They just play around with rhymes and wordplay and a lot of really fun stuff. So if you are a rom-com screenwriter and you don't understand that there is this kind of wordplay in hip-hop, you can listen to Watt and learn something. All right. So at that point, let's go on to the next album. Um, and that will be Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And um, just to, to give a little intro to it, um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, to me, were the heralds of what was to become modern Los Angeles. You know, this is the way I mentioned that um, Tribe Called Quest really reflected New York and New York's sensibility and the way New York blended and this kind of response to what was going on at that moment. It was a very kind of, you know, uh, sophisticated blending of different things. The Chili Peppers, to me, always have had that peculiar blend of like what L.A. is about. And it's different than other cities because they're 
nowadays, I think there isn't this clear sensibility of what LA is. I mean, in earlier years, you might have talked about the Beach Boys and Beach Girls or New Age oddballs and people, you know, with crystals and stuff. That's not really modern Los Angeles. It's modern Los Angeles to me is a place where you have a bunch of different flavors that are separate and distinct within whatever brew you're taking, whatever concoction, and they're strong flavors. They have a kick to it. It's just a city where, you know, you, you can't say there's a certain accent or a certain style or a certain sensibility, but there's a certain flavor to it brought about by all these different cultures that are here. And it's definitely not the laid back LA of years past, but it's also not manic. It's, uh, I, I describe it to me as like a mellow stoner who's trying to take off his anxiety, the edge off his anxiety. And so that's what the Chili Peppers, to me, their music is like. It's manic, it's mellow, it's always funky, and their ingredients are always apparent in what they're playing. And one of the highest compliments I can give to them is that nobody else sounds like them, wherever has. They have a very unique sound. Um, for this album, they collaborated with Rick Rubin, who's produced a lot of great albums. Um, and the band, which consisted of, in this uh, incarnation of Anthony Kiedis, John Frusciante, Flea, and Chad Smith. Now, Frusciante and Chad Smith joined in 89 after Hilo Slovak died. And when Hilo Slovak died, their original drummer, Jack Irons, left the band. So this represented a new incarnation. They had been on Mother's Milk together, I believe. But this is really kind of, a, this is the classic lineup. And very specific. And what happened was Rick Rubin asked them to, to record this in an unusual location. So they found some home in the Hollywood Hills, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then they just hung out there and a mansion there and recorded this album. So without further ado, blood, sugar, sex, magic, Howard, your thoughts. So my thoughts are going to be centered around uh, one individual specifically because, and I, I'm, I'm not by any stretch like a, a chili peppers aficionado, um, but hearing them over the years, to me, there's a very different chili peppers with and without John Frusciante. And this to me, Definitely agree with you. Yeah. Definitely I mean, he, he, yeah, and and I would encourage anybody who's become a Chili Peppers listener or fan over the years that hasn't explored Frusciante's solo material to go have a good time and do that because it's incredible. Because he is incredibly talented, insightful, unique. It has a very, very, you know, his own kind of style and approach to music and playing. But he has he has his own personality and challenges, and he had some personality <laughs> clashes in the band over the years, in and out of the band. But to me, musically, this album oozes John Frusciante. Uh, not to take anything away from anybody else that musically on the album, but this, that, that to me is what stands out, is just his guitar playing, the style, the music, how, how, how it fits the music, um, you know, from the chords and the solos, like everything that the guitar work is, is doing, to me, is what drives this album. There's incredible lyrics too. Obviously, the you know the story of Under the Bridge and you know Kitas and you know all, all of that. But that to me is 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 the driver of all of this. If you're a guitar player, go sit down and study this album 
Um, if you're into, you know, alternative rock guitar, this is an album for you to go spend some time with and just, you know, kind of nerd out because there's just some incredible, incredible work from Frusciante on here. As a guitar player, I will say amen. And, and let, please note that, that all of that is coming from me as a drummer. Yeah, no, but but from from the guitar side, absolutely, it's great to shout him out because he really does change the sensibility, the sound of the band, and he is amazingly gifted. Those those personality clashes, interestingly enough, what I'd read about him is a lot of it was due to the fact that he wanted them, you know, and it's kind of unrealistic once you become so good and so popular, but he was more comfortable for them being a club band yeah. and just being, you know, smaller and having a small you know, group of fans and followers. And so becoming this, all of a sudden, I think this album sold 13 million copies. You know, it was huge. It was everywhere in 91, 91 well, to 92. And, and to that point, when he's, over the years, has released his solo material, it was all, I think, either, uh, you know, uh, independent, you know, not on, not on a major label. Like he didn't exactly, he didn't want that. He just wanted to make music. He's one, you know, he's definitely got a different, he's a different personality, but yeah, that, that's exactly what I had recalled too, that his, he was uh, not comfortable with where they were heading with their, their fame. And, and it, it, it was, uh, it was a turnoff for him. Um, so he just went to go make his own music, but yeah, he never sought that kind of stuff out, out at all. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, you, you become, everybody wants people love their music and you become really famous. And so, you know, it, it's almost inevitable. You're going to have to deal with certain things. And so, yeah, I could, it, you could see how for him, it was something where he had to step away from it at times. You know, it's interesting. A lot of, one thing that I think unifies a lot of these bands that we all liked in the early nineties um, is a sense that, I mean, because it's, look, it's our generation. It's a sense that we had a more ironic distancing to pop culture you know we saw a lot of the hypocrisy for what it was in terms of this consumerism and corporatism and you knew where it led and so you saw that with you know a lot of the grunge bands that just you know to my view went sometimes too far away from being you know from doing things which were going to play to the audience because look people are coming to see you play you want to at least acknowledge that but there, but a lot of it was born out of this whole notion of you didn't want to become the very thing which you, you know, decried beforehand. And, uh, and, you, and you see that in a lot of the, what the band Pearl Jam makes me think of that, you know, a lot of bands like that. So yeah, what there's, are, a, there's a lot. Well, we could go because there, there, there is there's an interesting for me that kind of and it would carried through into the late 90s and even early 2000s. Um, there's an entire side of the culture around, um, dare I bring it up, the culture around action sports, which it was referred to at the time. There we so go. Heavily... You have to bring in, where's the, where's the sound? I know. But, there you go. But it, because of the connection point to, to the emergence of alternative rock, grunge, and all of that, but very much in similar light of it evolving from this anti-establishment you know rebels kind of space to an unbelievably commercialized enterprise yeah just overly absolutely oozing with commercialization losing the entire point of exactly of being underground rebellious 
staying out of the limelight, all of that stuff. It just, and they were, they were inexplicably connected and remain so to this day, but very much so from that mid mid nineties, late nineties, all the way through into the two thousands. There's a good point about that. Just culturally. I mean, uh, yeah. obviously you and I talk sports and we've talked sports on this channel. For those of you who are interested, we've had sports podcasts and we're going to have more in the future, but um you saw it not just in the action sports, you can see also in the mainstream sports where suddenly it's like there were all these tie-ins. The NFL was the master of this. They got so they got smart about how to tie their sport into everything and MTV and all these kinds of different things. So but the but what stands out when you say that to me is I always remember this God again, taking this thing and when it becomes commercialized or they co-opt this sensibility. Because I remember in the early nineties the sensibility of trying to be of no, trying to be is probably not a good way to put it, uh, of, of alternative, of looking at things in an alternative viewpoint, we'll have an alternative music, alternative ways of, of engaging the world and not necessarily, you know, accepting what was kind of corporatized. And that's what it felt like a very corporatized mainstream view. But it always made me think of there was, do you guys remember the drink Fruitopia? Oh yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember I, the ads. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I remember those ads and thinking, Oh, this, I wonder who this cool independent, you know, juice company is. That's kind of a cool idea for Utopia. And then I looked at the bottle and it was Coca-Cola. And it was like, okay, everything has to be taken by them and turned into something. Um, and it's just, that's what it makes me think of. So it's like not wanting to be Fruitopia is a lot of this stuff that happened in the 90s. And it was a lot, you know, the, the deregulation, I think there was... Um, it was 96 or 97. It was a telecom bill. And it was a bill that changed how much ownership you could have of broadcast networks and radio stations. And prior to that, they limited how much a particular company could own in any given market and overall. And of course, what did they decide to do in the go-go times is to just say, okay, let's just break that and allow corporations to own multiple uh, networks in multiple markets. Now, the argument would be, well, there's other means of communication, et cetera, et cetera. But inevitably, they just consolidated everywhere. And so you see around about that time, you start seeing less and less of these really unique and individual artists, especially in music. So that's where it happens. You know, that's a lot of that stuff. They just, it eats its own. So um, what do you think stands out for you, Howard, on this album? On the, did I see what songs stand out on this this album? Uh, no, you did not. Um, you know, the hits are the hits. Um, yeah. So um, Funky Monks always kind of jumped out at me, um, I would say. Um, now, that was your nickname, right, back in the 90s? Funky still Monks. is. Okay. There's no, there's no was to that. Um yeah, and, and you know, it, it wasn't an album. I would say at the time, it was not an album that I, I, you know, I ran out and bought. I was, I was not a Chili Peppers, you know, huge Chili Peppers fan, in in that in that time period. So um, I've heard the tunes on, you know, on the radio, um, but I was not running out to to grab this. It's only one that over the years I've I've gone back and listened to. In fact, a lot of it came from a buddy of mine who gave me Frusciante solo material. And once I listened to that, I'm like, I need to go back and listen to all of his stuff with Chili Peppers. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of went the other direction. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't have, you know, specific tunes to call out from this that really, uh, that really impacted my, uh, 
my my being in 1991. Okay, no, interesting. But I know because I remember talking to David Cochin about this little known band. Yeah. Remember, we were, I, I remember distinctly we would talk about the Red Hot Chili Peppers just when they were starting out. And it was like, what are these guys about? And they, they had a, a song, I think it was called Special Secret Song Inside. So I won't, I won't, I won't repeat the lyrics on this show, but if you all would like to explore that song, you can find Special Secret Song Inside out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'll talk about the Chili Peppers and talk about this album. So, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think the title of that song, Spe- Special Secret Song Inside, kind of gives you some idea. That's not the real title of the song, but uh, uh, when, when you, you know, find what, out the what's lyric. The real, what's the real title? Dude? Yes, I know. <laughs> not to be repeated here, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a band that, you know, I'll say we discovered pretty early on, even earlier than that was, uh, you know, we saw the video for True Men Don't Kill Coyotes, and it was... Uh, was like what on earth is this band about but you know it really intrigues you and it, it you know it makes you want to find out more about them and then uh, uh and also very early on they worked with george clinton um on a very funky album called freaky oh, yeah. Sunday, mm-hmm. um which is another one that's just amazing from start to finish so um yeah i mean i would say certainly mother's milk was uh their big breakthrough but then this was the one uh, blood sugar sex magic that that really just made them huge. And I mean, you know, it's interesting when you're listening to an album to to sort of try to get a sense of what they're going for and what the the producer is, is trying to, to get from them. In this case, Rick Rubin. And I just kind of felt like from the beginning, this this is an album where they're just going to they're just going all out. And they, they're just, everything's about abandon and, um, you know, whether people are going to like it or not. I mean, that's not to say that the production values were, were pretty top notch, but, um, you know, they had leaned pretty heavily on the punk part of, uh, <laughs> the punk part of. Was it, was it that, that's a band, right? Punk fart? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, that was not on purpose. Uh, so, uh, yes, the punk part of uh, punk funk. Um, and now it, uh, it's, it was sounding like they were going for more of the, the funk side of things uh, and, the, and the rock side of things. And uh, I think, you know, to a large degree, they really succeeded in doing that. I think Chad Smith had a big part of, of that. Um, his rhythms are incredible. Um, and, uh, and again, I think Rick Rubin was, was a big part of bringing that out in them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that they were purposely trying to get a much bigger market. Um, you also saw, um, Anthony Kiedis sort of crooning a lot more than he used to. And I'm not so sure that that was so successful for, in, in my opinion, but, um, you know, on songs like under the bridge, but obviously a lot of people like that. Um, but, uh, I mean, really it's, it really is a, a, an excellent album from start to finish. And, uh, I think if I were to pick out some of my favorites, I'd go with Sir Psycho Sexy cause that's just super funky and, uh, we'll definitely give it away if it weren't played to death, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and it, and it really does sort of bring back a, a certain era, you know, you just listen to it and. 
it just makes you think of, you know, L.A. in 1991. Um, yeah. And to that much. point, I'd, I'd be curious for people, because, again, all three of us, while we didn't grow up here, were here in 1991. And Under the Bridge is such, an, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an L.A. song in so many ways. And it has been similarly played, you know, I think. It, there hasn't been a day since since September twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one, that song hasn't been on the radio in Los Angeles on some station, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But I wonder about that in other parts of the country. Like, was that song from this album as prominent as maybe maybe Give It Away was, or what? Like, what was the song in other parts of the country? Because that one in particular here is it just resonates Los Angeles so much that it, I think it has cultural significance. It may not play in other parts of the country. If you're in other parts of the country or in other parts of the world, just write info at 34circe.com and let us know what did you think of Under the Bridge and we'll tell Howard personally. Actually, if you know, another seminal album that came out that year was REM, Out of Time. Mm-hmm. And so... Between Under the Bridge and Losing My Religion, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, hard to remember any other song that was being played. Well, I guess other than, uh, what was it, Timmy T? Get one more try? Oh, God. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, well, we're going to actually, I, and we'll talk about this after, we're, we're going to plan our full 1991 review because it was a pretty amazing year in terms of just really this again talking about this transition the shift this opening up and this expression there were so many albums released that year that had that effect but um yeah it was it's it's i think you know oh, to the crooning thing i just remember that i remember in the early 90s like probably right after the album was released talking to a vocal coach she might have been his vocal coach anthony Kiedis, his vocal coach about how anthony was like he was working on his vocals and his, you know, specifically that kind of crooning, you know, to be able to do that. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I have distinct memories of talking to someone about that at that time. Um, right. And, I, and if I could just add one thing also, um, you know, you had mentioned earlier, Sean, about how nothing had really sounded like this album up till that point. It's interesting to know just how how many albums after that really fell into that same formula. And I know that, you know, a lot of the record companies, it's like, okay, this is what's selling. This is what we have to push. Um, And even, you know, if they have bands that have never ventured into that territory before, um, you know, are going to try it to varying degrees of success. But I mean, it really was, uh, you know, pioneering because there were just so many albums. And even to this day, um, you know, you'll hear stuff that, that sounds a lot like it. Yeah, and I think I well, I would say it's uh, it tries to sound like it because the thing that people always miss, what I think all really, for me, to me, all really great bands, or I'll say the bands that I consider great, is this musicianship, and these are really good musicians. And so you can try to do their stuff. I mean, you could try to do Steely Dan, but you know, it's probably not going to work for you. So, you know, you get you create a certain sound because you have a certain ability. Um, I, I really liked I mean, I, I love these guys. I thought I love their musicianship. I love their their willingness to experiment. I love the way their sound, you know, one reflects the City of Angels, but also the way it reflects 
that kind of energy about the city. I mean, I've always felt, you know, talking to people about Los Angeles that people still have frozen in their memory of like good vibrations, Los Angeles, which is great Los Angeles to remember, but it doesn't exist really anymore. And if you want to find your way there, and again, it's 30 years ago, but a good starting point is listening to like this album, Chili Peppers, and getting a sense of where LA goes. I mean, you can also, you know, there's the, there's the other side of things like NWA and things like that that are happening. But I really think you, you get a sensibility of more where the city was headed when you hear that kind of blend. Um, yes. And Jason. I, yeah, Jason Dixon. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, for me, the stuff that that sticks out, there's a, you know, I know Give It Away, like you say, is overplayed, but it's still, I still love it. And then there's a, there's a trio of songs, Give It Away, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, and Under the Bridge, which, you know, the, they bookend, they, you know, played a thousand times. But I just, it's a great trio. And what I like, what they do on this album in particular is that there's lots of left turns. So, so they have their standard kind of funk stuff. They have their standard punk funk that they go into, but then you go out into like, I could have lied, which is like an acoustic ballad and breaking the girl, which, you know, I love when you just switch time signatures up and start doing something a little different. Um, you've got that, you know, there's just, just different feels and different things. And I, I like the way they alter that. I like the way that album does that. So, um, all right. So that is under the bridge. Now we end last but not least dear to my heart, raise your grunge flags high. Uh, let's talk about nevermind. Um, so without question, one of the rare albums that literally shifted culture, uh, along with the hip hop explosion of the late eighties, grunge changed the music landscape forever. The nineties would see the dominance of these two music forms, hip hop and grunge. But what Nevermind did was invigorate what was seemingly a dying art, rock and roll, and it doesn't get enough credit for it. Rock in the 80s was characterized as much by geriatric baby boomer artists with big hair and sports coats with even bigger shoulders singing overproduced pablum or these little hair metal bands with housewife makeup pretending to be dangerous. Then all of a sudden the world changed. And, and to, to be fair, Guns N' Roses deserves some credit as a transitional band from hair rock to grunge, a missing link of sorts. But Nirvana, along with Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots were clearly the mutations. Uh, Nirvana also represented an expression of working class angst in the Pacific Northwest. This is a period of time in the early 90s when the changes wrought by 80s capitalism really began to show devastating effects on middle class America. Cloudy Seattle in the late 80s, early 90s was the perfect soil for an eruption, an expression of disaffected youth who were left behind. Uh, so the lineup of the band is Kurt Cobain, God rest his soul, uh, Chris Novoselic, which I always um, mispronounce his last name, so hopefully I got it right, and some guy named Dave Grohl. Um, so anyway, amazing album. Um, let's talk about it. Let's... Um, uh, why, don't, why don't I start off the grunge talk? So for me, um, it, this was an edge of, and, and one of the ends of grunge. The grunge took, for me, its form a, a lot from that kind of drop detuning of Black Sabbath and heavy metal bands and just gave it a twist. You got, you know, a lot of different time signatures, a lot of different things that they were playing around with and other tunings but it really had that groove. Whereas Nirvana was much more from the punk end. 
that were much more from the thrash end. And so their album represents, you know, one of the other forms of underground music that kind of comes out and becomes this popular expression. Smells Like Teen Spirit, of course, has been talked about millions and millions and millions and millions of times, but it still does actually sound fresh to me. I can, it still has this eruption. So the album begins with that and it ends with Endless Nameless. And it's like it begins with this harsh explosion and it ends with this harsh drone. I mean, they clearly, you know, I've listened to interviews uh, about them and, and the music and how Cobain put things together. And these were sophisticated musicians who had, a, you know, at first listen, you don't always get that. But when you listen more care, carefully and closely, these guys are sophisticated, sophisticated melodies. They're playing around with chords, different voicings, different sounds. And so although this album has a, a kind of a uniform kind of a, a roughness to it, a harshness to it, you can hear a lot of different sorts of colors in that, in that you know, tapestry or that template. So it's like, it's a really interesting album to listen to. Uh, what stand out for me are Smells Like Teen Spirit and Come As You Are. Um, those are the two that I really still come back to and listen to. Um, things like Lithium and Poly is still powerful to me as well. Um, but I think what I take from this is, is remembering all of these bands. It's like, I've been waiting for them and they showed up and it was really nice to hear. I didn't give enough of a shout out probably to Rage Against the Machine in this too, but they're so different. They're unique. They're all, they're a whole other discussion, but, um, but Nirvana, I remember a, a guy telling me you got to hear this Nirvana. This is the new thing or something like that. It was like some, it was a guy, in fact, it was a guy, I think that we had, if I'm not mistaken, I think we had gone to college with him. He was out here for a little bit, a cup of coffee and then gone. But he had said, you, you listen to this Nirvana. I was like, what? And I just, just before it really kind of exploded. And I was like, wow, I was this, you know, I remember having the same experience hearing Soundgarden just in a store and running out to buy the album or the cassette at that point. But they, they were, everything shifted once this music became popular. And again, it can only become popular at a time when there was this brief opening in the world where this kind of stuff could slip through into the mainstream. But it, it changed the kinds of stuff you were listening to, it changed the kinds of bands they were signing. It moved music into, a, to me, a much more interesting end until, of course, they took a pillow and snuffed it out and suffocated it to death under their corporate greed. But anyhow, while it lasted, it was pretty amazing. So there's my take on, on uh, Nevermind. So uh, David Cochin? Yes. Yes, John Newcomb. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I definitely remember uh, going to the very first Lollapalooza concert uh, back in 1991, uh, saw an up and coming band called Nine Inch Nails, <laughs> and they were, you know, early in the bill, so they really weren't that well known at the time. It was still daylight when they were playing, and Trent Reznor even said something about how uh, he wasn't so sure about <laughs> playing while the sun was still out, but um and on the same bill was Ice-T, you know, which gives you some idea of just how open things were becoming. At the yep. Time. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And I just remember, you know, 
walking through the crowds and seeing um, this one guy wearing a t-shirt that said Nirvana on it. And I had never heard of them before. And I just thought, uh, oh, what, what are they about, you know? And then it was just so amazing how quickly and, you know, how impactful the, uh, when they, when they, when they hit, it was just, it really was an amazing culture shift. Um, and, and much is made about how, when that album hit uh, number one, it replaced Michael Jackson at number one. And, uh, that, you know, that was extremely symbolic of the time. Um, and it also knocked, uh, hair metal, <laughs> way off the charts, you know, that and all the other grunge albums, Pearl Jam 10, you know, for one, mm -hmm. um, and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. But, um, but yeah, this album in particular, it's, it's just incredible. You know, I mean, you, you could, I, I can't get tired of listening to it. Um, it's amazing. The, uh, um, just the sound of the guitar and how, um, you know, that level of distortion and feedback that you get, and then just the rasp in Kurt Cobain's voice um, is really, uh, you, you just hear the emotion and the pain. And, you know, having now read a biography of him, just what he went through growing up, uh, it's just all there, you know, and that's what was so refreshing and so um, what was needed in the music industry, you know, to, to replace all the artificiality um, of what was coming before. And, um, I mean, Kurt Cobain himself said he thought that that album was too overproduced, which is amazing to think, you know, the next album, uh, in utero was actually even, uh, more raw sounding. They went with a whole different producer and, and they, they told him, we, we don't want this to be slick and overproduced <laughs> like the last, last one. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I've also heard about the, the, I guess it's the second last song on the album, Something in the Way, um, where Kurt Cobain was actually lying on the studio floor playing the guitar and singing. Uh, and they set up the mic so that, you know, that's how it was going to be recorded. And, you know, I mean, who would have thought of doing something that way, you know, producing a song that way that was going to come out on an album? Um, this sense of adventurousness and um, just putting it all out there, trying anything um, that, that felt right. And without a doubt, it just comes through. And, and to this day, it just sounds amazing. And uh, uh, really just one of the great, not just one of the great grunge albums, but one of the greatest albums, you know, of all time. Uh, it's hard to come up with much that's come out since then that's, you know, anywhere near as good. Yeah, I would agree. There's, or, or certainly that shifts, I mean, has the impact that it had. It's just, there really, I can't think of anything that had that same impact the same way. So, um, Howard Broadwin? I'm, I'm, I'm still recoiling from your disparagement of uh, hair metal bands you talked about in the intro. So I, I know, I know it's painful, yeah, that, Howard, that hurt. but I, I had to be, you know, <laughs> that, 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 that heard that comment about, uh, was it housewife makeup? Yeah, that was, uh, that's a, uh, them's fighting words. Man. Gotta, gotta speak your truth, man. Yeah. Speak yeah, your truth. Was... Uh, yeah, this is, you know, this, this is an iconic album for, for good reason. Um, I, I, again, I'll go back to what we, you know, we talked about with, 
low end theory. Like this is this is an album. This is an album that's not. It, it, interestingly, it's an album that doesn't invite you in. It it knocks you on your ass and drags you in on the very first song, right? Like it's not a it's not a welcome invitation. It's a, it's a punch in the face invitation at the very very beginning. Um, but it is it 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 has structure of of a of an entire album and a theme and you know and and everything and how it's i think it's put together um and you know the 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 hits while again probably still to this day these are songs that get played you know on the radio you know on a, something from this album is played on the radio whether it's you know come as you are or teen spirit or lithium or in bloom or any you know any of these I, and and i think for young people today who are kind of you know who are interested in the roots of of alternative rock, um, depending on how far back you want to go. I mean, this, this is required listening period. I mean, it just is, you, you can't, you can't just skip over it. Um, if you want to kind of track the whole evolution of, of rock, hard rock and alternative rock music, this is, this is grunge. This is, uh, got to put on your flannel shirt and, uh, you know, and, and give it a listen. Um, Interesting too, from and again, now I'll take the other track as a drummer. Um, this is Dave Grohl's first record with Nirvana. Um, yeah. So and 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 interesting, I mean, to think of it in that sense. And he's you know you've heard interviews with him. You know he's talked about his time in the band and you know how much he appreciates and what it what it meant to him and his career. Um, but you get to hear him as a drummer, which no nobody really hears about anymore. Uh, cause he doesn't obviously, you know, he hasn't done that in, in a very long time. Um, he's a ridiculously talented drummer, uh, had a, had a very unique kind of style in, in that era of how he played, how he approached the, the drums, especially to, to think about, um, that this is a three piece, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is the power trio, you know, if, if you want to call it that, you know, which references to other bands, but you know, this is a three piece band. So you know, you have to carry your weight pretty heavily on your instrument. And this is and and not in no way am I knocking Kurt Cobain as a guitar player, but this is not a three-piece band dri driven by a virtuoso guitarist either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, so so even more pressure and and Chris Novoselli also not a a, a uh, iconic uh you know virtuoso bass player. So yeah, just, they, just so I want to say, Howard, just was interesting in listening to him. I saw an interview with him and it, it, I didn't realize how sophisticated he was a musician though. I I know what you're saying. It's just, I, I just, it's interesting uh, as, as he starts to talk about what he was doing and the voicings he was using. So he, there is, he merits another listen. Like definitely. He, he merits another listen. Definitely. Uh, and I, and Grohl, I was teasing about earlier, like, you know, who's some guy named Dave Grohl, but it's interesting for people who, I would imagine younger people who won't, you know, realize he's the drummer in Nirvana. They might know Nirvana. They might know Dave Grohl. They might not realize put two and two together. So yeah, you're right. He's, he was amazing. I think that's the key too. Again, for me and going back and listening to this album is to listen to the drumming on the album as it relates to the the whole context of each of the songs and the and the the whole offering. Um, and obviously, I mean, he's evolved as a musician, as anybody would, who's been in it as long as he has and approaches it the way he does, because he similarly, you know, it, it has a blast playing 
you know, music. He just, this is who he is and what, and what he does. Um, but yeah, I think his, that's one thing that that's always stood out for me, even when I first heard it. I mean, I remember first hearing it and being, you know, kind of, you know, hit with a little bit of that. Wow. That's a, that's a heavy thumping Bonham-esque kind of, kind of sound going on here. Like what, what is that? And, you know, kind of following it along. And that was the always interesting thing for me when, when he went on to form Foo Fighters and he wasn't playing drums, I was like, oh man, that's, I like that guy on the drums. Why isn't he playing drums in this band? Like, that would be so cool. Uh, so I, that, that's something that's always stood out to me uh, about this record. Um, and I, like I say, I think it, it, it is, it's an album that anybody who is, is contemporary into anything in, in alternative rock of any kind, you, you have to go spend some time with it. Great. If you if you can say, yeah, I know the hits, it's like, well, go, go, you know, go spend some time. Again, this is what albums were in the, in that era. Um, and I think it, I think it warrants, you know, that, that sit down. And interestingly too, Dave, you, you made reference to it earlier. That was one of the things that, that, I, that I looked up is th- this album, if you will, when it came out on CD had a hidden track which was something that was, you know, a couple of vinyls that had that over the years, right? It wasn't common, but every once in a while, but you could see on a vinyl record, if there was still space for the needle to track that there was still more music to come, right. You know, versus it hitting and the, and the, you know, and, and, and it, it returning back, but on a CD you'd plug it in and then all of a sudden the last song would play and then it would just keep going in silence. And then, six minutes, eight minutes later, a song would start playing out of nowhere. And you're like, what the hell is this? And it was a hidden track. And this, this had a hidden track on it, Um, which again, I think was part of the, you know, kind of the unique nature of, of what this, you know, what this was about. And to me, I like, it's a cool tune. It's, it's called endless nameless. And it's kind of a cool closing to the record. Right. It kind of has more of that, even though it wasn't it was not, you know, on the vinyl, but it has more of that. It fits really well to kind of wrap everything up at the at the end of all of it. And, you know, what's interesting is, uh, you know, even after Dave Grohl started Foo, Foo Fighters, he he definitely still had the itch to play drums. He, he you know, I guess it was a very conscious decision that he wasn't going to be playing drums yeah. So, you know, he was doing some side stuff with Queens of the Stone Age and Them Crooked Vultures, That's which right. was a super group with uh, Josh Homme and um, J- um, John Paul Jones. Um, and it's just incredible. You listen to those albums and they just wouldn't be what they are without that talent um, behind the kit. <laughs> um, and it's kind of a shame, you know, that he, he, he doesn't do that as much as he used to. Um, for you know whatever reason he chooses, but uh, but you're right. I mean, it's the drumming um, uh, equally to anything else on Nevermind that that makes it what it is. It's it's interesting because I think it's hard. I, I know that when there are uh, Chris Novoselic and uh, Kim Vea were talking about the early days of their bands, Soundgarden and Nirvana, uh, it came up about Soundgarden that you know because Chris Cornell was originally the drummer. Soundgarden uh, and a really good drummer and played a lot of different time signatures and stuff. But uh, obviously, he became an iconic frontman. 
but they were talking about how they were thinking like we can't have him be our front man and we need him as our drummer you know although obviously as a front man he's, he really you know leaves his mark on rock and on grunge in, in specific but it was because he couldn't play all these kinds of like he couldn't play the way he wanted to play and also sing and so it became that was the decision i think I would imagine it's probably the same thing with Dave Grohl. He probably was like, okay, these are songs that I want to sing and express, and it's harder to do. I mean, even Don Henley, right? I mean, he I mean, he was behind the drums a lot, but then also when he went solo, he was just singing out front. Is that correct? I think that's the way he did it, right? Yeah. He's yeah. Out front. He wasn't on the drums at all. Or Phil Collins for that, you know, for, for that matter. Or, or Howard Broadwin on his solo album. So... There, there's a there's a great a great quote uh, that uh, is attributed to Cobain that says his his aim for Nevermind was to sound like the Knack and the Bay City Rollers getting molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath. Oh my god! I mean, you couldn't put it any better. That's what that album is. <laughs> that's perfect. Because that's a perfect way for him to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great point because, you know, speaking on the, I guess, the Bay City Roller side of things, these songs are very melodic. Yeah. I mean, yes, that's a good that's point. It's forgotten that, um, you know, these chord changes and the vocal, you know, the choices that Kurt Cobain makes in terms of the melodies and where they go, um, it, it, it kind of gets forgotten in the mix of things. But these are amazing melodies and amazing songs as a result. Well, he was a big Beatles fan. They said he would study Beatles tunes and Beatles songwriting. He was very much influenced by that. And of course, that's a melodic and classic songwriting, songwriting structure. So, you know, you can see it and it comes out. And also, it's interesting to bring up the Beatles with him, that his voice, you're talking about his voice. You know, people compare, they say that he and John Lennon had the two, were the two people with these classic rock and roll voices. It's, I think one guy described this as almost sounded like two people singing at once. You know, there was that kind of like extra layer to it when they would sing. And they really did. They had that kind of classic rock voice. So amazing. It was an amazing loss. Um, and it, in a sense, when he was gone, it, it really did end the grunge era really quickly. You know, there was there was a few things that still came out after that, but it was never the same symbolically, I would say, obviously, because there was the really the changes and regulations that ended a lot of that stuff. But, um, you know, just in closing, that's, you know, it really did shift things so much. And we're still living and appreciating the, the way things shifted because of that. Um, let's just kind of wrap up and close up all of this by um, just, you know, getting your final thoughts. Because, you know, we obviously are talking about these seminal albums. We are going to, for the listener, we are going to talk about 1991 in full. So that'll be the next thing we talk about with this. But um, what do you guys think? So, David, you give us your kind of closing on this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would basically say it's just... Um... You just don't realize at the time, you know, how, how good you've got it in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, the stuff that's coming out. And, um, you know, the, the fact that these three albums came out um, on the same day, along with some others. I, uh, you know, I saw that article you sent, uh, you know, albums by the Pixies and Primal Scream and Van Morrison. 
it's incredible um, to think and, you know, to, you just get a, a much better appreciation for it all these years later when you think of um, what passes for talent nowadays. Um, and, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's, it's not that we're just sort of these old curmudgeons who are like, oh, well, you know, when we, when we were kids, because there has been good stuff that's come out since then. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, I've loved the stuff by White Stripes and Black Keys and um, mm -hmm, you know, sure. that whole new garage movement that, you know, that was uh, prevalent. The amazing stuff they had. Yeah, that was some great stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just everything's become so commodified. And uh, I think, you know, with all of the, uh, you know, with the spotification of, <laughs> of everything, yeah. And I think it's just because there's there's um, been such a shortening of attention spans. I mean, they even say now songs themselves, pop songs themselves, have become shorter. They're like less than three minutes. It's it's almost like it's back in the fifties or something. And and it's a very conscious decision because there's just this awareness that the attention spans and concentration spans of, uh, of people just because of how things are nowadays. That's, that's just how it is. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you go back and listen to these albums and you're just reminded how, you know, what an amazing time it was and just the quality and, and the commitment and effort that was made. Um, and it all came from authentic creativity and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm cautiously optimistic that at some point it'll turn around and we'll, we'll hear stuff like that again in the future. All right. Howard, if you would. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I think it, it, to, to Dave's point too, it's also, you know, it's such a different era of how uh, entertainment material and specifically music is released, you know, that you don't really have these, days like this like i don't know that you'll have somebody will look back on september whatever whatever 2022 and go this was the day that these three tiktoks came out and they changed everything right i mean it's possible but that's again that's not how things are done these days like it was back then like you said that soundgarden album was slated to come out this day and it was pushed back by a week because of but i mean it in you know in today's world, it wouldn't have been pushed back by a week to the following Tuesday. It would have just come out uh, two days later or five days. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered. Like it's because it's not, it's not, it, this is the day when stuff gets released because that's what it was in that era. So I think that's kind of the interesting moment in time of what this was uh, that, you know, that, that, that this stuff all happened, what well, was all released on this day. Um, I think the other interesting point too, is to, to look at those three albums were um, extremely well produced. And there was, I think, a lot of the influence of those producers. Um, we didn't mention Butch Vig as the producer. Of, I don't know if we did. Maybe I missed it of, of the Nirvana album. But we're talking about three you know, very iconic producers in, in that sense as well. But... And, and using probably the technology that was available at that time, but not overusing the technology, not relying on the technology to take an artist and make them better than they really were. 
versus what we still unfortunately sit with, I think, in this era is we're, we're still in the era of auto-tune. And that's not something that I think had it even been available that would have been utilized. Certainly, you know, you can, you can tell from Kurt Cobain's, you know, words about his, you know, the production of that album, anything that would have cleaned up the sound would have been, you know, you would have been shown the door pretty quickly if that was your suggestion. So I think that's interesting too, is like, there were great tools of the trade to be used to make those albums sound the way they did. I mean, the low end theory is, is all about how it's mixed, all about how it's layered and put together. Um, but it's, it, it was all trying to be respectful of the music and what the artist wanted to convey. And it wasn't about how do we make this a hit? Um, you know, so I think that's also the other interesting aspects, not to say there wasn't stuff at that time. We rattled off all of, all of the pop, tunes that were uh, you know uh, on the charts in those era and i'm sure they were they were dialed in to sound exactly like the way the machine wanted you wanted them to sound so they could sell more of them um but these three albums weren't like that and i think that's also a testament to their staying power and, and what they represent um and most importantly for 1991 was that the giants won the super bowl let's see if we can get the proper <laughs> Side side note side note to that though because I did, did did my research as well I very obviously very well aware of the Giants winning the Super Bowl that year, um, but was unaware that the halftime performance at the Super Bowl that year was none other than New Kids on the Block. Well, I I if I could find the proper kind of response that I would play it, but I won't. Well, you know who sang the national anthem, right? New Kids on the Block. Or Tim, Timmy T? Timmy T. No, neither Timmy T nor Paul Abdul. It was Whitney Houston. Oh, so, yes. There you so, go. Anyway. I, was, I was just curious. Does anyone know what became of that uh, Nirvana drummer, Dave Gruel? What was it? Yes, exactly. No, it's like I, I, do, I do wonder if, if, again, those if the younger – listeners put two and two together I, sure. I literally with the internet that they have to i literally just no i literally just heard a podcast this week and these were not young people these were uh, 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 adults i will say uh, you know i'd say 10 10 15 years younger than us and literally two of them said they were they were referencing the taylor hawkins memorial concert and and the moment where taylor hawkins son came out and played drums and and both of these guys said, you know, I, I, I didn't realize that Dave Grohl was the drummer in Nirvana. Mm-hmm. I was I was late to the party on that one. Wow. Interesting. They yeah, literally well, just said that on a podcast this week. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, you're just finding that out in 2022 when we have the Internet. And right. Dave Grohl's been a big deal for a while. Exactly. Wow. I mean, it, I mean it's that was shocking. You couldn't the guy find out talking a lot to of said, it. Who's Nirvana? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, that's look. I, I'll, I'll just end it with this thing. It's it's to time travel. I mean, uh, I, I've told you guys I like to do what I call time traveling on YouTube, where I just listen to a broadcast from a particular era and just get a sense of really what that era was like at that time for a person just around at that time. Now, obviously, I was around for this, so I didn't have to. But going back and listening to this stuff. Um, it's just reminded of the possibilities that were there, 
reminded for me how far we are away from that, not just musically, but as a culture, just like in terms of cultural values of what we care about and what we want, what we feel is important to individualism and uniqueness. But if just bringing this podcast out and letting people listen to it and let them hear this, and you know, if you aren't familiar with the music, become familiar with it. You know, let's see if we can maybe rekindle some of that sensibility again. So, I just want to thank the uh, the Pride of New Jersey duo, the duo from Jersey, Mr. David Cochin and Mr. Howard Broadwin. Thank you, Mr. Newcomb. Uh, Always quite a pleasure. An honor. Uh, thank you, and I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel. We've been talking about September 24th, 1991, this incredible date in music. Thank you all for listening, and God bless. <laughs>